BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. In our times on its annual break, and we'll be back on the 19th of September. Until then, we're offering a podcast each Thursday, chosen from our archive of more than 850 editions, which I hope you'll enjoy. For news of our next season, you can follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. Have a good summer. Hello, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is regarded as the greatest chivalric poem of the medieval world. It's set at Camelot at Christmas when a strange green man rides in on a green horse holding an axe and challenges King Arthur to hit him and be hit back. Gawain steps in, takes the axe and chops off his green head, only for the trunk to pick up the head, telling Gawain to meet him next year when he'll do the same to him. The chivalrous Gawain takes up the challenge. It's vividly told, and at its heart is how Gawain approaches unexpectedly death the following Christmas, which he both faces up to and yet tries to avoid. With me to discuss Sir Gawain and the Green Knight are Laura Ash, Professor of English Literature at Worcester College, University of Oxford, Simon Armitage, translator of the poem and Professor of Poetry at the Universities of Leeds and Oxford, and Ad Potter, Professor of Medieval English Literature at the University of Bristol and editor of the poem. Laura Ash, what might first audiences have brought to this story when they heard it? What would they know about knights and chivalry and all that? The first thing they would know is that they're plunged into the foundation myth of Western Europe. The poem begins with the siege of Troy. It tells us, Sin the sage in the assault was cessed at Troy, the both Britain and burnt to Brondus and Ascus. That is, after the siege finished, then history begins. And history begins when Brutus comes to Britain and founds the British line of kings, of whom the greatest king is Arthur. And so we're immediately plugged into the foundation history of the greatness of the country in which we sit in the late 14th century. And the greatest of those kings then is Arthur, in, on whom we zero in and we find ourselves at his glorious court. And now the audience can connect with a whole trope of ideas that they have from the romance, which is the court as a centre of celebration and beauty and perfect knights and perfect ladies and feasting and then questing individual And the luxury of dress and so on. Oh, of course, yes. Everything you could imagine. And the this poem, like all romances, is very interesting interested in the wealth, the riches, the luxury um, that these people have and possess and display. It's written in, you guess, around 1370. Can you localise it a bit as well as the date, the time? So going on the dialect of the poem, we put it in the northwest Midlands, um, round about the border of, indeed, some of the places it describes, the Wirral um, and kind of the top of Wales into the northwest part of England. But the real question is this sense of places that mattered in the British past, you know, the Welsh past, which is the British past. And it's about the same time the Chaucer's Canterbury Tales came out. Yes. And yet this was lost for centuries and Canterbury Tales spread its wings and Go Little Book, as Chaucer said, went through the centuries. I mean, partly that is geographical in terms of Chaucer writing in London and for the courtly audience, but the geography also impinges upon the dialect. Hence, it's not that people in London couldn't necessarily have understood the more northern dialect, although it's possible that they had some difficulty with it. But certainly it's just in different circles, that where things that were written in London were um, much more easily expanded and transmitted across, um, things written in in provincial centres had to take their chances. Can you tell us what people would think of as a chivalric code at that time? 
The Shivarit Code is something very slippery. What it ultimately means, it's a term of art for the successful business of being a warrior aristocrat. And in practice, that means a whole load of values that come from really the warrior past, prowess, pride in your skill in warfare, but also added to that Christian values of mercy and purity to, to some degree, but above all, socialised elite values of what generosity. I mean? What I mean is um, a whole demeanour of courtesy, generosity to your fellows, loyalty, always keeping your word, magnanimity, um, a sense of fellowship with those who are like you. And then, of course, in the literature and to some degree in life, uh, the idea of love had entered the chivalric code, that um, the great knight will also have a noble love of a lady. Was this, in one way, consciously or unconsciously, you will tell me, a way to stave off the fact that what they were going, what they were doing, was going around killing people a lot of the time? I think so, very much. The point about chivalry was it was an attempt to suggest that this hedonistic way of life that the warrior aristocracy of Western Europe led was nonetheless a vocation, that it was an ethical code, that it was something that God would smile upon and that could take you to heaven. And that really was riven with paradoxes that I think this poem takes some time gently to expose. Simon Armitage, what, in less of a nutshell than I did it, is the story about? Uh, well, as Laura said, it uh, it briefly starts at the siege of Troy, just to establish a, a bloodline with the with the founding fathers of of Britain. But the inciting incident is the Green Knight entering the hall on a green horse and laying down uh, what seems to be an absurd challenge, um, a, a strike for a strike. Arthur picks up the sword. He interprets this as a sort of uh, a martial challenge and is is about to. Uh, wield the weapon when Gawain pops up from his seat and uh, I think, you know, in terms of thinking of a beheading, he almost literally imagines this as, as a no-brainer and uh, steps forward and says, let this let this challenge be mine uh, he, he chops the head of the Green Knight off, it rolls across the floor uh, the Green Knight somehow knows where it is and uh, picks it up again and says I will see you in a year's time, uh, in, a, in a year and a day so a year goes by and uh, Gawain sets off across the countryside to keep his date with destiny. Um, and uh, at his lowest point, when he's cold, lonely, uh, hungry, exhausted, uh, he, he makes a prayer and almost straight away in front of him is this uh, most incredible, beautiful castle uh, into which he is invited and it's at that point that uh, a story within the story begins, a challenge within the challenge uh, the, the master of the house who we later find out is Lord Bertillac uh, says to Gawain we'll play a little exchange game here, I'll go out hunting every day and what I win in the field I will give to you when I come back as long as whatever you win uh, in the house during the day uh, you will give to me, which Gawain agrees to. Uh, and as soon as the Lord has gone out uh, to make his first hunting trip, Gawain is in bed and he hears the door of the bedchamber open and in comes Lord Bertillac's wife. And over the course of three days, uh, Gawain receives a series of kisses uh, which he has to give to the Lord and Master in return for uh, killed deer and uh, 
a wild boar and fox. And then comes the moment uh, which really is, uh, you know, highlights Gawain's faults and his flaws, which is that uh, he is offered uh, a magical belt from around the lady's waist, which has life-protecting properties. Uh, he agrees to take it and neglects to tell the lord and master of the house that he has done. Uh, that game comes to an end. A guide takes him towards this mysterious place, uh, the Green Chapel, where Gawain submits to the Green Knight's axe. And again, in a series of, of, of threes, uh, the Green Knight... Uh, makes three attempts on Gawain's neck uh, and on the third occasion just, just skims him. Um, and then there is something of a, of a discussion about uh, what, what was meant by, by the whole enterprise and Gawain returns to Camelot wearing the green belt now as a sash or a baldric and it's adopted by the round table uh, as a, a mark of their, their code and honour. Did you you use you use a lot of alliteration in your translation, which bounds along, which I enjoyed enormously. Um, was that in the original text? Was that or did you that how you set out to you talk you talk alliteratively quite a bit at the moment? I Simon. think that's probably As a consequence of translating the poem. <laughs> it's become a kind of Tourette. So I, I, I can't get rid of it. Um, yeah, it absolutely uh, it is in the poem, and uh, I've talked before about uh, the alliteration within it as being the, the warp and the weft, the poetic warp and weft which holds the, the, the poem together w without uh, that alliteration. To me, it, it's still a great story, but the, the poetic energy and the poignancy and sometimes the comedy of the poem uh, is lost. And I, I had a feeling that, that what's happened over uh, a number of years is that in making faithful restorations and translations of the poem and, and being loyal to, to word meaning and definition, you are automatically taken away from, from the acoustic uh, patterns in the, in the poem. So it, it, I, I, I took it upon myself to, to re-score, to, to, to re-orchestrate the, the poem with those noises. And we'll come on, Ad, thank you very much, we'll come on to that, a bit more of that in just a couple of minutes, Ad. First of all, the poem was lost for centuries. How did that happen? Well, how was it found is the easiest thing. <laughs> yeah, well, no one seems to have read it. There's very little sign of it uh, being read at the time. Uh, it was collected by Henry Savile of Bank, who collected a lot of manuscripts from the north. Then it came into uh, the hands of Sir Robert Cotton, who was a great collector of manuscripts. It almost got burnt in the fire of Ashburnham House yeah. in 1731. <laughs> so we're very lucky to have it. And then it just uh, languished uh, in, in the British Library. No one read it until the 19th century. And then it was discovered and then people took it on and then they just <coughs> it then was... they declared it to be unique and the greatest chivalric poem and so on. You've edited so Simon was talking about what he did with the language. Can you give us some idea of what the original language sounded like? We're talking about the same time as Chaucer's, I, I indicated earlier. Can you give us a bit more detail on that, please? Sure. Well, the key is, is uh, as Simon says, is, is alliteration. And what the poem does is to combine alliterative long lines. You see this instantly when you look at the poem in an edition. You've got these long lines, and then you've got the five short lines that rhyme. And in these alliterative long lines, the key is the repetition of the same sound at the beginning of stressed syllables. Such as? You've got the book, uh, I've Yeah, got the I'll read you a bit. You promised to give us an example. I will read you two alliterative long lines. 
If ye will listen this lie, but on little wheeler, ye shall tell it as teet, as ye in tune herder. So those are the alliterative long lines where you hear three uh, uh, alliterating sounds. Uh, it was L in the first one, if you will listen this lie, but on little wheeler. And then a T in the next line. I shall tell it as teet, as in tune herder. What does all that mean? Um, if you want to listen to the story for a little while, I will tell it promptly as I heard it uh, recited in public. Now, this is the same time as Chaucer, and the one that apparently in the shortest sort that dropped a march, the beginning of Canterbury Tales, then led on, a seemed to have led on to the rest of the This died away and doesn't seem to have had any impact beyond its own until it was rediscovered, until it was discovered in the 19th century. I think to some extent that is a, a sort of product of linguistic history. The the English we speak is basically descended from Chaucerian English, so we find Chaucer comprehensible. This poet was writing in a Cheshire dialect, um, and that has been sidelined really by by an accident of linguistic history. That's not the language you and I speak, so we find it really difficult. My students find it very difficult. My students think when they read the poem that this must be a lot older than Chaucer. Um, they cannot conceive that they, that these poets were actually contemporaries. They seem a world apart. What advantages did the poet get by, say, setting the poem at Camelot and at Christmas? Uh, Camelot, um, that is the big, uh, the big place where Arthur Hall's court and puts you straight in the Romance tradition. Christmas seems to be something of a convention of Middle English romances. They like setting their stories at Christmas. The French poets like setting their stories at springtime at easter the english poets like christmas um and they do that i think because it had become in the 14th century the big festival yeah just on that because it says at the beginning of the poem that um they're all waiting this entire feast has been served but arthur won't sit down until he hears of some aventure until he has some adventure some excitement that he can find out about. And it's at that moment, of course, that on cue, the Green Knight rides in. It's almost a case of uh, be careful what you wish for. Yes. <laughs> and the Green Man comes in, uh, at least a head taller than everybody else, and mm-hmm. massively built with green hair, clad in green, green feet, on a green horse. And I have to say it slowly, because it does sound a bit nursery rhymish, which it wasn't. It was very menacing, indeed. And they, they're overawed by him, and so on. Then he... he, he he begins what becomes the beheading game, but he doesn't, in fact, ask to be beheaded, does he? It's Gawain who makes Arthur, first of all, and Gawain who say, we'll behead this man and then see what happens. Is that, you tell me. Yeah, so we call it the beheading game because it turns up in other texts. And so there is an intertextual reason, you know, a sense that this trope exists in folktale that means that it has to be a beheading game. The earliest version I know of is in a Middle Irish manuscript of about 1100 in which a character called Terror proposes the beheading game and it's very clear what's happening there. The beheading game is if you chop my head off, I'll chop yours off. Exactly. Right. And so the idea there is of course the test is, is the hero equal to terror? Can he cope with terror? So you can see it has a folktale root. So there's that reason why it's a beheading game. Then there's the narrative compulsion that if, for example, so the Green Knight when he comes in, he says, you can tell I come in peace, I'm not armed and I'm holding a sprig of holly. I also happen to have this four-foot axe. Um, And he says, if you will exchange a blow for another, then you can have this axe as a present. And so, you know, a a clever solution would have been to tap him with the holly and then, ha-ha, Christmas would carry on. 
But, of course, then it would be a very short poem. Um, but the final reason that it has to be of a heading game is is this crisis precipitated by the fact that Arthur loses his temper. Arthur, who we're told is somewhat childred, he is quite childlike, we're told. He's, he's wild in his brain, we're told. And he grabs the axe and starts swinging it round the Green Knight's head. And at that point, someone has to save the day and the axe has to be the weapon. And it's then that Gawain steps in. But the meaning of the beheading game, I think, is very important because the main problem with it is that it's a game. So in all the other versions, some overt meaning is given to it, as in, is our hero equal to terror? Or alternatively, um, the person who takes up the game is a knight with no identity, no importance, and this is how he acquires his identity. Here, in contrast, we have Gawain, who is the finest knight of the court, who is left, as soon as the Green Knight has picked his head up off the floor, Gawain is left in this absolutely horrific situation whereby he can break his word, lose his honour, and the court will lose its honour forever, or he can keep his word and die, and the court loses its greatest knight and hence loses its honour. What did you make of that when you came to translate it, Simon? That, that Gawain's response, which took it on further? Well, it's a really uh, fascinating passage. I mean, the whole interchange between the knight and Arthur and then Gawain. As Laura says, uh, it isn't explicitly stated that the challenge needs to be with an axe. It's Arthur who interprets it that way, even though the axe is part of the conversation. And Gawain follows suit. So uh, I think the knight says to him, uh, it needs to be somebody who is brave enough of blood and wild enough in their head. Mm. And um, it, it, the, the, the passage in which Gawain rises from the table and asks for the challenge to, to be his is a very handsome section in the poem. And it's also, I think, very telling. Uh, it's, it's very skillfully and, and subtly written. Um, Gawain is very self-deprecating. He describes himself as the as the weakest and most inexperienced of the knights. Is that uh, he's, part of the chivalric posture? He's he's Arthur's nephew. Uh, yeah. Tolkien puts it, in, it, it really well. He says uh, in Tolkien's translation. In Tolkien's translation, he says um, something along the lines of. Uh, my 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 life means the least if if my life is lost. He plays with those with those L words, and um, at the same time. Uh, I also get the impression that Gawain is seeing this as an opportunity. I think I think he's, he's something of an opportunist, an opportunity to prove himself in front of Arthur, in front of the court, the round table, Guinevere, God, and that's when he comes forward. And I think in in that section, we see Gawain's character uh, very beautifully drawn, um, both somebody who wants to be uh, courageous and also... Um, you know, save his king from the embarrassment of having to go through with this, you know, absurd challenge. At the same time, I also think uh, he sees it as an opportunity for promotion. And, and Potter, how does the meter of the poem, a small, small bit of which you read recently, how does it, um, how does it drive the matter in the poem? I think the meter has some of the same contrasts that the poem does. The poem is so rich in contrasts, in settings, indoor, outdoor, the comfort of indoors, the rigours of outdoor life. And I think what the poet has tried to do with his metre is to find some of that same balance. You get the roughness of a literature verse, which is not regular in its rhythms. And that roughness is followed by 
these five lines at the end of all of the stanzas, the bob and wheel, that are in flowing and melodious verse. They certainly alliterate, but the, the rhythm is regular and alternating. So you have two very different forms of, uh, of music. It's, it's what Simon called the kind of acoustic world of the poem is very rich and has these contrasts, uh, which I think the, the, poet, the poet wanted. Would the audience listening at the time, let's presume, that like, like Chaucer's poems, they were read aloud to audiences who were, wanted to be read aloud to, whether they're educated or not, we don't, we don't know. Some of them certainly were. Would they appreciate all this? Um, I think, they, of course, they would have understood the language much better than we would. Um, they were also part of a, of a literary tradition, um, of alliterative poetry, so that some of the specialised diction, which is really hard for modern readers, I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of the number of words this poet has for man. If he wants to say man, he can he can say freke if he wants to alliterate on an F. He can say weir if he wants to alliterate on a W. He can say hazel if he wants to alliterate on H. That diction was more familiar to audiences who had read and heard other poems in alliterative metre. <coughs> yeah. And so they would know what was going on, they would follow it, and it would be have been delivered orally, you think, to a, to a court, as it were. I imagine uh, an oral performance of it myself, yes. And I think some of the, uh, the structure of the poem, there it is written in four fits, makes fits? that... Uh, four, four parts. Yeah. Sorry, I should have glossed that word. It's, it's in four parts... Uh, and that, I think, makes it possible to recite it in instalments. And what goes on in the beginning of the poem, when Arthur asks initially for a tale of adventure to liven up his meal on New Year's Day, that is actually the kind of circumstances in which the poem itself may have been recited. So uh, imagine an audience on Christmas Day that needs entertainment, New Year's Day. We, we want stories, we want to be entertained... Um, that is the situation in the poem itself and very likely to be the situation outside the, the poem for the audience. Laura, he sets off to find the Green Knight and has, uh, this is a year later, yeah. and has a fantastical journey. Uh, and there's a wonderful description of the seasons changing in that year. Yes. Uh, beautiful. Um, and then he meets wild beasts and giants and very briefly we are led to assume, demolishes a lot of them, and on he goes in this one amazing armour, uh, but very wearily, hungrily, often sleeping in the open, we're told, mm -hmm. sometimes in the... Uh, can you... Um, is this a typical quest uh, uh, situation? This is very beautifully done because in many ways it is a typical quest situation which um, echoes the pattern, the structure of all kinds of Arthurian romances, but everything is slightly twisted. So the astonishing description of the seasons is utterly beautiful, poetically beautiful, and it allows us to imagine for a moment that we're in a cyclical world where you know winter will come, but then spring will come, everything will renew. And then just as if we're allowing ourselves to rest into that, we're then told, a year yenus full yena and yeldus nevalika, the form to the finismant, foldus full selden. A year turns very quickly and does not give back the same. The beginning to the ending very seldom matches. And we're now, we have... Im 
enforced upon us again and again that we're not in a cyclical world, we're in a linear world, time is passing for Gawain and he is now approaching his death and he thinks all the time on this quest of his death and that is the first twist because in Arthurian romance no one ever dies you know, the threat of death is entirely spurious and invented and we get that hammered home to us when we're told oh and he was attacked by bulls and bears and snakes and dragons and wadwos and giants Um, and I'm sure he would have died loads of times, says the poet, he literally says I'm sure he would have died loads except he was great and what we've just had in 10 yeah, lines it, yeah that Sorry, is the way he puts it. it and what we've just had in those 10 lines is the whole plot of another Arthurian romance you know a whole plot which has him fight ever greater enemies showing that he's an ever greater knight how uh, do you want to come in yeah I, I think that's a really good point Laura makes that he doesn't seem to be very interested in the usual stuff of romance fights with dra- with dragons and yeah. wild men um, because just when he said, um, you know, he might have been killed very often, the poet says, but the winter was worse. Where wrath him not so much that winter yeah. not worse. And, and then yeah. you return to an, an unusual element of realism, these wintry landscapes. Icicles hanging off his helmet. Yeah, yeah the yeah. beauty of that. The and, chill of it. And, the, and exactly, so his human body and his shivering and his cold and his fear of death in comparison with, we've had a description of his gorgeous armour, none of which is going to protect him because presumably he's going to kneel down and have his head cut off. And so this constant sense of suspense and horror cutting against the structures of the romance. I think it, it's also in passages like that that we realise uh, just what a wonderful poet and storyteller the, the Gawain poet was. Um, all that adventure, uh, which, as you say, takes place very quickly and almost off-camera, really, uh, is a prelude to the moment when Gawain will be confronted with this beautiful and very hospitable castle. Mm. I mean, we're not talking about sort of, uh, you know, a little chef uh, with with a sort of, uh, (laughs) you know, a burger bar across the road. We're talking (laughs) high-end hospitality uh, waiting for him. I think we can live with that. um, Can I just ask you one thing before we move on? Laura, this this description of the seasons, which is quite wonderful, did it surprise you how accurate, surprised me, how accurate and detailed? It was Laurentian in a way, wasn't it? It's just massive, it's just precise, moving. He's got it. Things happen to colours, heat, the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's, uh, very meteorological uh, descriptions of what's happening in the sky what's happening in, on the land what's happening to the to the animals at the same time it happens very quickly over about one and a half sections it's got to be there we've got to know that the world has turned on its axis we've got to know that a year has passed but i don't think the uh, author wants to get caught up uh, with, with you know several stanzas of of uh, of the passage of time, um, so it, although it is beautiful and accurate, uh, very quickly a year has gone by. And if you compare that with uh, the next section of the poem, which is Gawain being armoured and getting dressed and ready to ride out on his horse Gringolet, that takes uh, a lot longer. That's sort of six, seven, eight, eight sections. Just, I wanted to come in on Simon talking about the amazing castle that he encounters and something that Ad said earlier about the brilliant contrast between outside and inside. This is vital to the romance. In the romance, there are only really two places to be. There's inside the court where you're celebrated and feasted and there's outside the court where you're tested and encounter enemies and obstacles. And the brilliant thing about Bertilac's castle is that 
Gawain thinks he's inside. He thinks he can relax. And in so fact, this is where he is well, tested. Really, he's in despair. He hasn't found this place. He, he prays. Terrible. He looks up and the castle is there, this yeah. massive castle. And he goes in and he's right, right royally received. There you are. <laughs> They're very excited to have him and they all whisper to each other, this is great stuff. Now we're going to find out how to be a knight, how to woo the ladies. And this is a joke that goes throughout because our Gawain is very pure and, and clean and, and has... and doesn't want to woo the lady, but everyone around him is saying, come on, you're Gawain. Yes, and you want to come in. Just to add that uh, Gawain had this reputation of being rather a womaniser, mm-hmm. and uh, this seems uh, this obviously was known to the poet, and it becomes known to the people in the poem well, um, who have expectations. Sorry, excuse me. We can't leave out a substantial section of the poem where this most beautiful woman, whom he doesn't know is the wife of... He's the most beautiful woman in the world, and she comes in, she, he's lying in bed, he wants, and he's been told he can stay He can stay there and rest and rest for the great the great feet ahead. And she makes a very clear attempt three times to seduce him. Yes. I mean, there's nothing hidden about that, is there? I'm not exaggerating. No, nothing at all. In fact, she, I'm being very reticent about it all. Well, she says... She says several very dangerous things. One is she says they're in complete privacy. And the problem is that in a chivalric honour world, if something isn't known about, it hasn't really happened. It doesn't have consequences. And she is very direct. She says to him, if you are Gawain, if you care for your courtesy, if you care for your reputation, why have you not asked me for a kiss? Why have you not asked me for more than a kiss? And she pushes him. We're told, the poet says she pushed him ever harder each day. And the, and the poet comments at one point, um, great peril between him stood. Um, great peril stood between them if Mary doesn't look after her knight. Simon? I think uh, it's important to remember at this point, though, that he's being stitched up. Yeah. Uh, I think in the modern parlance... But he doesn't know he's being stitched up. He doesn't up. know, but... but uh, and, and actually, we, we don't know at that point That's right, either. We don't know. Uh, but retrospectively, we find out that this is, I think, what the papers these days would call a, a honey trap. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's a kind of pincer movement, really, from which Gawain has no option. Um, he even at one point tries to pretend that he's asleep as she comes into the to the room. And he has to use all his skills uh, as a, a knight uh, to, to deflect and parry her advances. Um, and eventually she presses upon him uh, this apparently allegedly magical belt uh, she's she's got she's got the belt in her hand actually as she as she offers it to he's already refused a ring and my feeling is that it's almost out of embarrassment as much as as much as wanting to save his neck that he he takes the belt um, on that, I think it's important that this isn't just his Christianity versus his chivalry. These are two aspects of his chivalry, that he has to be loyal to the Lord and he has to be courteous to the lady. So even chivalry itself doesn't help him in this situation. No, he's, he, he, he has to offend one of them by mm. by accepting... Uh, you know the, what the, what the other person wants. Is there a distinct uh, is there a distinct uh, change in language in her seduction scenes? Um, I don't think the language changes a great deal. Um, she is very direct. He is forever tactful, and mm. that tactfulness sometimes consists of misconstruing what she's in fact yes. after. So he's he's a, he's a beautifully courteous knight who finds a way, tries to find ways of parrying her in a way that doesn't offend her, that doesn't hurt her feelings. But he's also he's looking after his own code, isn't he? He's looking after the chivalrous 
and the chivalrous code of a knight. He mustn't take advantage when he's been given hospitality of someone connected with those who give him hospitality. This would be unchivalrous. Is that right? That is absolutely right. So In that's, fact, the way he... that's tearing away at him. But at the well. same also time, know, sorry, sorry, but at the same time, the chivalrous code, as she keeps saying to him, she keeps saying, "You're not going if you won't make love to me." Is what she keeps saying. He, yeah. His chivalrous code goes. Both I think ways. Shiv- I think code <laughs> is not always a very no. helpful word. It suggests something very rigid. And I think what the poet sees is that there are ethical conflicts here. On the one hand, of course, he mustn't sleep with a lady. Um, she's the wife of the man who's offering him hospitality, but there are her feelings to consider, and of course, there is also his own life to consider when he takes the green girdle. So that there are... The green girdle is going to protect him from death. Yes, that's the big thing. So he takes it. Later he regrets that and considers himself to have been a coward for taking it because he knows he's not going to die because of the green girdle. Yeah, and in, in, in some ways um, it's only his own moral code that he's gone against there. Uh, n- nobody ever said at the at the beginning of the challenge that uh, he wasn't allowed to use a little magic in uh, you know when when he when he finally meets the green knight in in the green chapel that that was never one of the agreed terms um, but he, I I think it, it it goes against the standards which he has has set himself um, it's the fact that he he decides not to to tell. Bertilak, that he has the belt that uh, is, is his crime in Bertilak's eyes. He doesn't do this exchange, and we have to miss out because we're going in this direction, on that direction. Very, very, quite long, intense, magnificent hunting scenes, tearing through the forest, catching deer, slicing them up, chasing that wild boar that evades them and turns on their dogs and so on. They go on and on, they're big scenes, uh, and they're powerful part of the poem. Why do you think, Ad, why do you think he was... He concentrated on those to the, accept, to the length at which he did. Uh, on the one hand, I think he loves the contrast between the, uh, the scenes in the bedroom where everything's hushed. Um, and it's cinematic, isn't it? The switch. And, yeah, and then you get the wild outdoors. Uh, although when I say wild, the thing we need to remember is that the hunt was the most important aristocratic pastime. And if you loved things courtly, you would also love the hunt. So that um, what we regard as uncivilised, you know, cutting up, slicing up of deer, is, is for the poet a, a form of art. It's, there's a way of doing it, a proper way of doing it, and he, he observes these uh, rituals of, uh, of courtly life. But it's amazing detail. I mean, you must have found it quite hard to translate. Absolute detail about how you skin a deer, you cut off this bit for that, and the offal for the dog. It's it's brilliantly done. Yeah, I mean, by way of research, I went to a, a deer farm in Todmorden and uh, and watched it taking place. And I got the impression that uh, as an art, it hadn't really changed over the over the centuries. Very very sort of tactfully and and skillfully done. But Laura's absolutely right. They are filmic jump cuts that take place, and um, I think we're being invited through watching these very detailed, quite grisly scenes of uh, you know internal organs of flesh penetration, the chase, the disrobing uh, of, of animals as, as a um, psychological version of, of the thoughts which are probably running riot in, in Gawain's head in, in the bedroom. What's so important about him being green, Ad? Uh, several things seem important. On the one hand, the colour green is associated with nature in the poem. 
Um, but green was also the colour of the devil, and that becomes very important as the poem moves towards the green chapel. Because Gawain at that moment thinks that he's dealing with some someone demonic, someone diabolical. So there the colour green takes on a, 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 the, a different meaning. It's a, the association with the devil that matters there. So we've already heard that the the giant has three goes to be had him, he misses the first time, misses the second, deliberately, and then he just nicks him on the third time, saying the first two times you returned the kisses, the third time you didn't return their belt, but that's a small matter really. Um, what does that say about the green, what does that say about the whole enterprise of the beheading, about the Green Knight's position in this and, uh, and Gawain's position in this? So at this point, the beheading game and the exchange of winnings game are brought together fatally for Gawain's realisation that he's been stitched up, in Simon's words. And what becomes apparent is that the beheading game was not just a Christmas game, as the Green Knight said it was, the Christmas game that Gawain had pitched to him that left him thinking... Um, as Simon suggested, that why shouldn't I use magic? He thinks, if he might have slipped to be unslain, the Slech were noble. If I could use this belt, this magic belt, not to be killed, then it would be a noble device. Seems fair enough. The Green Knight used magic. And so in, in terms of the chivalric game, he has he thinks that this is how he will succeed. But when the Green Knight faints at him twice and then nicks his neck and says, oh, you were doing so well, but then you failed in your loyalty on the third day, because you took the girdle and didn't give it back. Um, he says, but it's because you loved your life, so I blame you the less. That's OK. But I take a harsher line than Simon on this about what Gawain has done wrong because I don't think it's... I mean, there's a, there's a reading of the poem which is a very amiable reading that says nobody is perfect, this is what Gawain learns. However, I think there's a deep twist that lies underneath, which is... Gawain goes to confession the day he goes to the Green Chapel and we're told he was confessed so clean as they're ready for doomsday. Mm. And he says to the guide who takes him there, I won't run away, I trust in God, I trust absolutely in God. And the problem is this is a lie. He's trusting in a supposedly magic belt. And the irony is if he had trusted in God, i.e. if he had just gone to his death and accepted what might happen, then nothing would have happened. And who want to come in? I think this is very true. Um, for Gawain's perspective on the matter. As far as Gawain is concerned, he's failed miserably. It, the interesting thing about the poem is that everyone else thinks he's done really well. That includes the Green Knight, who pats him on the back and says, well done. Arthur's court take a similar view. Yeah, but uh, here's the thing, though. What's the Green Knight's moral high ground? He has been operated the whole way through by the evil sorceress, Morgan Le Fay, what's the court's moral high ground? They're the people who did nothing when this crisis arose. And then when Gawain rode away, said, well, that was stupid. Who let that happen? So the court is hypocritical and shallow and the Green Knight doesn't have the moral high ground. And we don't know the poet's opinion and we don't know God's opinion. And the poet could have told us either. You bring these contradictions over very clearly, Simon. What did you think of them as you were, um, <coughs> as you were translating it? Um, I don't feel that uh, the religious elements are as important in the poem as some other people do. Uh, the, the poem is religious in the sense that it has religious trappings and furnishings. Uh, but I, I think the, the lesson, if we can put it that way, that, that Gawain actually learns is one of, of being human. Uh, his, his, his mistakes are, are very human mistakes. I think he learns to be 
uh, a, a mortal. Flinching from the blade is an involuntary uh, biological reflex. Um, I don't suppose he or the Gawain poet would have put it in those terms. Also, accepting the belt for, for loving his life through, much, through wanting to exist and survive uh, may go against some elements of the chivalric code. Uh, but he 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 analyzes his uh, his his faults into um, untruth and treachery and and cowardice and not all of those things are religious sins. How did it figure in the pattern of chivalric literature at the time? This challenging the chivalry, deceiving the chivalry, and bringing Christianity to bear against the chivalry, whereas it was supposed to inform it. Is this played out elsewhere? I think it's very unusual. We normally have heroes, of course, who succeed. And what we have in this romance is a hero who fails. Um, I think that creates possibilities. It becomes possible to measure heroism by the way you respond to failure. And I think one of the way Gawain reveals his heroism, there's no other word for it. You and I wouldn't have gone to the Green Chapel to have our head cut off. We wouldn't have gone as far as this. We are inferior to Gawain. But Gawain sets himself high standards. And I think his mortification at failure is really a reflection of the standards he sets himself, which are so much higher than anyone else's. Would you conclude about the poet from the complications which he sets ethically uh, and on? I think that, um, and this is where I differ from Simon, I think he is a profoundly Christian poet who is writing an absolutely astonishingly brilliant chivalric romance which nonetheless eviscerates very gently very quietly the values of chivalry because the reason I think that Gawain failed was um, he is a hero he has astonishingly high standards as Ad says but he's trapped in what seems to be a meaningless game because you can't win chivalry by dying so he's told you have to keep your honour but you can't keep your honour So we are left with a contradiction why is the anti-chivalric poem supposed to be a uniquely great poem in the history of chivalry? Simon, that's up to you. Because it's a great piece of literature. <laughs> uh, and I think what we keep going back to, or what I go back to, uh, is just the astonishing uh, feat of, of, of authorship. Um, you know, what's very apparent in this poem is that uh, the, the poet is, is a master of structure, the way that he seeds the plot, threads the narrative, uh, gives um, character to, to people from... Uh, aristocracy right down to the lowest guide even to supernatural people to the great detail in the poem uh, you know that description of, of the castle which he talks about being pared out of paper and so on he is he is a he is one of the godfathers of contemporary poetry everything that we respect and admire and celebrate about poetry today is in this poem well thank you very much simon armitage ad potter and laura ash <laughs> Uh, thank you for listening. Next week we'll be talking about the poor law of 1834 and the rise of the workhouse. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Well, we didn't talk about the pentangle for a no, start. Didn't. Yes, we didn't. Um, so the pentangle, this design on his, um, on his shield, shield. Yeah. that um, the poet the poet says, I'm going to stop and explain this to you, even if it delays me. <laughs> and then he spends tens of lines explaining what this five-pointed star, this endless knot, signifies. So we have five sets of five, and the first two are Gawain's physical qualities and his mental qualities. And then we have two Christian ones in a kind of tick box way, <laughs> um, the five wounds of Christ and the five joys 
followers of Mary. And then we have five chivalric qualities which are unique to this poet. Any poet of the time could have posited five chivalric qualities. The ones this poet uses are already quite mixed, secular and Christian. We have fellowship, fellowship, um, loyalty to your fellow knights, clanness, which is purity of soul, sinlessness, um, courtesy, which is that whole way of being when you're courteous and polite to everyone, franchise, which is generosity, greatness of soul, and pite, which is mercy and piety both. Um, so that's his guide to chivalry. But then he says that this endless knot is fastened on that man and we, we're having hugely telegraphed to us this is a, an impossible-to-reach standard of perfection. Oh. Though that uh, um, love of patterns that he shows mm. in the pentangle is also the pattern that he sets himself and manages to realise in the mm. poem because the poem is numerological. Line one is repeated at line 2525, which is the multiples of five, which are also in the pentangle. So um, he, he, loved, he loved patterns mm. and uh, he describes the pentangle in precisely... 25 alliterative long lines. <laughs> of course, um, reading the poem numerically can read you down, lead, lead you down all kinds of sort yeah. of conspiracy theory <laughs> routes, yes. can't you? I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the, in the colour in, in the poem. I mean, I, there, there have been a lot of theories and there's a lot of speculation about the way it links to heraldry or the devil or to dress codes and to the world of fairies. And I, I, I've never felt that any of those theories were particularly conclusive or convincing I feel that uh, he has imposed meaning on the colour green within mm. the context of the poem rather than drawing on um, you know prescribed uh, significances and I, I really like this idea that it's something to do with the internal world versus the outside world the round table is, is comfortable, it's cosseted, it's secure mm. and the green knight comes along from the outside to challenge that also if we think about the the Green Chapel, uh, you know, the, the Green Knight's supposed home. This is a place without a roof. It's very much of the outside. And as Laura was saying, when he turns up, as well as holding the um, the axe, he has a branch or a bob or a, a sprig of holly. Um, and in some ways, that, that makes him evergreen. Uh, you know, this is the middle of winter. So he is both seasonal and mm -hmm. unseasonal. And I think that... that that ambiguity is absolutely key because as, he's, he's not just a freak. He's not just a monster. Yes, he's green. He's enker green. He's vivid green. But he, he, he's also uh, handsome, sleek, slim at the waist, and he's a speaker of the King's English. We know this because he speaks to Arthur. So he, he's not a, a, a complete, you know, he's, he's not got four heads or something like that. And I think that makes him uh, a credible enemy for Gawain to stand up to and measure himself it's against. What, it's what puts them in the trap. Because if he were a green monster, or even, let's face it, a peasant, they could throw him out. But because he's a great figure of knighthood he's and also knight. happens to be green, yeah. they have to go for He it. is a knight and he's a figure of nature, as you say, but then he's also so smartly dressed. And the other way, the, the colour green becomes so important, as Simon rightly says, in the work itself, is when the girdle comes into play. Mm. That is a green girdle. Now, we don't know as yet that it has has any connection with the Green Knight, but that becomes obvious in retrospect. So, so he, there's there's a bit of colour coding going on in the in the yeah. in the poem and in the plotting. And the, the the point's been made elsewhere that what 
other colour could he have been? No, exactly. you know, if he Blue were black or pink <laughs> or red, uh, yeah. you know, we're talking about sort of skin tones. Black would have been too funereal and morbid and too overdramatic. Purple, blue, that would yeah, it would have been absurd. <laughs> he, he has this relationship with the natural world. He's both of our world and not of our world. Wouldn't black have been more de- by demonic than green, though? Well, the devil does wear green. No, so you're right, there is an association, but then then also the association with nature, and I agree with you entirely. I think when my students say, what does the green mean? I say, it means we don't know what this means. You know, he is threatening because we don't know what he means. And he is not green the way some knights are. You can can encounter green knights in romances, and what that means is that they've got green armour. Now, so the poet has to emphasise that it's, it's not just his armour that's green, it's everything that is yeah. green. And but it's also delayed brilliantly, isn't it? So we're, we're first told that he's tall yeah. and he's perfectly formed and he's handsome and he's well-dressed and only at the very end of one of the mm. short rhyming lines are we told, he fared her as Freko Afada and Oral Enka Grena. He bore himself as a noble man and he was green all over. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I would only sort of add that from my point of view, I think the poem is very funny. <laughs> and a lot of that humour yes. sometimes gets taken away. Oh. In the, in, like going in, in clutching the, the duvet up to his chin. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he is a kind of prissy, yeah. precocious, oh, pretentious... Oh, pi- I'm alliterating again. <laughs> uh, he, he, he is those things, and I, I think he's been set up for a, for a, for a mm. failure, certainly with the armouring and the dressing yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, after a while, I just think... Come on. Yeah. <laughs> the social comedy is really exquisite. There's the, the bedroom scenes are so well observed. And he's embarrassed. Mm. And there's not many poems that... the exchange that... of winning scenes. Sorry, just yes. following up. So he, when he gives the kisses back to, back to the Lord, he, of course, doesn't know he's giving them back. He doesn't know that the Lord sent her with the kisses. But nevertheless, he gives them to their rightful owner exactly as they were given to him. So we're told that he throws his arms around the Lord's neck and kisses him sweetly and courteously. And so he makes himself a comic figure in doing that. Well, in a way, I think you're underwriting it. I think he's trying to act out... <coughs> The chivalry which he's devoted himself to. He mustn't do this because knights don't uh, uh, make love to, uh, as we're on there, um, the, the wife of their I host. mean, they do, though, in romances, a lot. Right. Yeah, happens a lot in romances, and that's why she—that's why she expects it to happen. Well, that's, a lot. that's the joke. It's all intertextual. You know, she's saying, "Look, I've read about Gawain. I know what Gawain does," and he's going, "No, that's not me. That's I've got Mary painted on the inside of my shield." Because it happened in other places doesn't mean he's got to do it as well. I, I think Maybe what makes him exceptional is that he doesn't act <laughs> like other people in other places. He feels to me as if he's out of his depth in those <laughs> scenes. Um, I also think that towards the end of those hunting scenes intercut with the bedroom scenes, the poem becomes incredibly transgressive, more transgressive than a green man losing his head and then sort of self-medicating. At one point, uh, a lie is being told. A man is contemplating wearing a belt from a woman's wardrobe. (coughs) That woman is the wife of uh, the man who another man is about to kiss. And I think at, at, at that moment, the... You know the the, the, the transgressions uh, are, are really you know heavily accumulated. And we haven't talked actually about the figure of Morgan Le Fay, whom we do encounter. We don't know who she is at the time. Um, when Gawain encounters the beautiful wife, at the same time, first time he encounters this 
um, ugly elderly lady and the poet spends some time contrasting the beauty of the young lady <coughs> with the hideousness of the elderly lady and only later do we discover that she is the person who has been running this whole show and is this presence I find that a bit half-hearted that bit actually mm. I think it was running out of steam rather convenient <laughs> <laughs> yes it's a convenient way of I think explaining the marvellous stop the discussion before it becomes more because transgressive in our time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Beyond Today is the daily podcast from Radio 4. It asks one big question about one big story in the news and beyond. I'm Tina Dehealy. I'm Matthew Price. And along with a team of curious producers, we are searching for answers that change the way we see the world. Subscribe to us on BBC Sounds. And join in on the hashtag Beyond, beyond Today. today. I, I went down, you went up.